Welcome to Everything All the Time. I'm your host, Melissa Taylor. And for today's podcast, I'm a researcher, a former candidate for mayor, and a mother. If you had a chance to listen to the trailer, you know that this podcast is meant to be a historical documentation of women during this time. We're just dealing with so much stress on a daily basis, and I don't want our narrative to get lost in history. But before we get started, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Throughout this podcast, I'm probably going to mess up a lot. I'm not an expert. I'm trying to learn, and I'm trying to do better. So will you try with me to keep learning? If anything I say ever marginalizes anyone, or if I overlook a glaring fact, please let me know. I want to learn and grow from my mistakes, and the only way I'll know about them is if you tell me. So let's get started. Women are asked all the time, how do we do this? And honestly, it's survival. I want you to think to yourself and think of a time when someone said to you, I don't know how you do it. Maybe you had small kids or a job that had too many hours. Maybe you suffered a terrible loss or you got life-altering news. And think about what you did. Did you just keep going? Because you had to. You just had to get through to the other side, even if you were crawling by your fingernails. And yes, some of you listening in those moments may have taken a look around and thought, well, it's not so bad because I have a house or an income or a partner or food. But I want to tell you that in those moments that you felt sad or frustrated, it's really okay. You don't have to bright side and look at what you do have. It's okay to be angry or hurt or frustrated. Those feelings are so valid and they need to be expressed because for too long, women have been told to smile more or have a positive attitude. And while those things can be helpful, your feelings are meant to be felt. So if it was too hard to get out of bed today, I feel you, I feel you in my bones. If you got out of bed, made coffee, got the kids started and sat around and cried, I understand. Maybe you didn't take a shower or change out of your pajamas. You know what? That's okay too. Because you have to do what feels right for you. And if being true to yourself means not looking at the bright side, you don't have to. Because right now, everything we do and everything we used to do, like getting the kids ready, running errands, cooking dinner, keeping a clean house, all of it is so much harder than it used to be. A lot of the outlets we had for escaping, like going to the gym or working in a coffee shop, going to the office, or just a night out is difficult and unavailable. And so often the advice to women in this situation, which honestly, it's always unhelpful, is prioritize yourself. Take time for self-care. In other words, here's just one more problem for you to solve. Because if you think of all the things we did to to escape, it's just, it's a lot of work right now. If you're going to hang out with a friend, where? Outside? Where outside? Who can you trust? Who's being safe? It's so hard to meet our own needs of just this very basic thing because we're absolutely maxed out. And the problem isn't that we aren't working hard enough. It's just that we're working all the time. One of the major things that is happening right now because of this situation is that the gender gap is going to widen between men and women. Studies are already showing that as states reopen and on-site work resumes, mothers may be at a higher risk for job loss because schools and daycares may not reopen or resume normal schedules, and employers 
may look at ways to cut costs. If women scale back their work hours, but men do not, any merit-based opportunities like raises or bonuses may disproportionately benefit men whose work commitments remained high during the pandemic. Economists and Federal Reserve officials have repeatedly expressed concern about how women and minorities are being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. The setbacks are threatening to erase years of economic progress and could have long-lasting implications for the U.S. recovery. Women's joblessness is at 8%, while men's is at 7.7%. In February, the female rate was lower than the male rate, but the number of women in August who reported being out of the labor force for family reasons, meaning to just help with the family, jumped from 55,000 to 79,000. Women continue to do more, and we are just working all the time, and our careers and our professional goals are being affected, and it's hard. So I'm going to welcome my guest today. My guest is Dr. Ayana Jameson, and we are going to talk about a number of things. We are going to talk about this idea of self-care and bright sighting and dystopian future because Dr. Ayana Jameson is a fascinating woman. We're both located in the San Gabriel Valley of California, which is part of L.A. County. And recently, I ran for mayor of our town, and that's how we got to know each other. I came in to shake things up and move our town forward. Unfortunately, I lost. Not my much, but I do think the message was delivered. And then we immediately went into lockdown. And so we've been living in this dystopian future of not leaving the house, and at the same time, we just suffered a week of the bobcat fire, which ravaged our mountains. And through all this is how I got to know Dr. Ayanna Jameson. She is an organizer, educator, and the founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, which is a global community inspired and committed to uplifting and highlighting Butler's life, work, and new works. If you are not aware of Octavia Butler, I encourage you to read her books. She's a science fiction writer, and they are extremely engaging, and her books are just delightful and engaging and really make you think. Octavia Butler is also from Pasadena, so many of the spots she references in the books are areas that surround us that live in Southern California. Finally, Dr. Jameson teaches cultural studies courses at California State University Polytechnic Pomona, and she is also the mother to a 10 and a 5-year-old. So welcome, Ayana. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I'm so excited to be the first guest on your podcast. <laughs> well, and I cannot think of a more perfect guest to start off a podcast about this time called 2020 than to sit down with you. And when I was getting to know you and learn your background, you study and teach apocalyptic fiction. And <laughs> I can't even tell anymore if we are sometimes living in apocalyptic fiction. I have like tweeted on more than one occasion that the writers of 2020 can just wrap it all up now. Right. There's this um, like picture meme around the internet that says uh, the, you know, science fiction, post uh, apocalyptic fiction has been moved to the history section of the bookstore or whatever. (laughs) And this was my, like, you know, I was really, really triggered at the beginning of the, uh, pandemic because I knew something was coming. People were looking at me like I was nuts when I was like buying lots of shaving cream and razors and ordering toilet paper and doing all kinds of like crisis things that 
people had not picked up on. I was like grocery shop, you know, the kids got one last haircut at the barbers. Like when I suspect, I just imagine there are people going through lots and lots of stress. And, um, and I think about those folks, that's what keeps me up at night. Cause I feel like our kids are going to do relatively well, um, because they can. Um, but no retail workers, single parents. My mom was a single mom of five kids. So I don't know how folks without a partner at home, how are they juggling just the intensity of all the things that are happening? I, I guess I'm a worrier and that's probably why I study apocalyptic fiction. I think that living here in San Gabriel Valley and having read her books. (laughs) Yeah. What I, what, I mean, I'm not the only person who says this, but um, there's some folks, um, Walida E. Marisha and Adrian Marie Brown wrote this um, book called Octavia's Brood, and it's science fiction stories by social justice activists, or they say many things, but one is that like somebody is already experiencing apocalypse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Octavia really was clued into that. But yeah, when you read Kindred or whatever, and you see like, oh, they live in Altadena, right? <laughs> um, or whatever the case may be, it really calls you to yourself um, in a way that I think you know, reading, reading someone else who is not so local to the landscape, it doesn't have the same impact. For sure. So, because it, you're, you're actually placed in the area. How did you become interested in apocalyptic fiction? I guess, I feel like I've said this story so many times, but I have a PhD in depth psychology, which is just broadly um, like the psychology of the unconscious. Like we think that people's behavior can be motivated by things they're not aware of. And so I was assigned all these old dead white men um, as sources in my, in my graduate work. And my respite was reading science fiction. And I was trying to figure out, just read the culture. So I like, I'm kind of like a cultural psychologist. We think, or I believe like the sickness is not in the individual, but the symptoms come out of the individual, right? Yeah. Meaning it's not like the individual person who's sick. It's the culture who's sick and the individual is expressing the symptoms through their actions. And that's what I was seeing in my work and in Octavia's work. um, It's so, she's, doing the same kind of culture work, but she's fictionalizing, you know, what would happen if, you know, this person, whatever, whatever the case may be, she's, she's positing these like, what if questions or if only, or if this goes on, you know, we're going to be in a world of trouble and showing us what that is. And I found that to be the most realistic use of my graduate time. Like, I, I don't think I was so young. I was the youngest woman in my class at the age of 27, I think when I started and the people are talking about, Oh, midlife crisis. And I'm going back to get a PhD. I'm like, Oh no. We don't, some people already in crisis, we don't need to get to midlife and buy a sports car in order to know that the way that the culture is needs revision. So I've actually, the only book I've read is Kindred. So I started researching other Octavia Butler books and also things from your organization. And one of the quotes that I found everywhere is that humans must adapt to an ever-changing world. And I found that to just be so poignant of this time because it just feels like we're pivoting every day. It's like whiplash some days. There's actually uh, Adrian Marie Brown has this book called Emergent Strategies in which she's like read all of Octavia's work and said, okay, the method that Octavia is using is 
emergent strategies, like figure that stuff out on the ground while it's happening. And Melissa, you really just expressed it so clearly without even having the term. And I feel that maybe that's one of your strengths because I, I know you through a mutual friend, but also because I voted for you for mayor because we do not need the person that is elected. We don't need those kinds of attitudes. We need people who can pivot. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think you have, you have your, finger on the pulse of that, that soul of what's needed, as opposed to the status quo. Oh, well, thank you. You know, you had mentioned earlier about how are single mothers handling this time or anyone that's not in her situation. And I think back to when I moved to California, and it was such a hard time for me, I had a newborn, a two and a half year old, and people would just constantly say to me, like, how are you doing this? And I don't really think I was doing anything. I was barely surviving. But my response was, you just do. Like, you just have to get through it. You have to keep moving forward. And that was what it was like when I was running for mayor. People would constantly ask how I was doing it with my kids at home and work and everything. And it was just, I just knew that it was the right thing to do. So I had to do it. And that's kind of how this pandemic is, right? Like, we just need to get through it. We need to adapt and we need to fix. And it's really hard. And when it's all over, we're going to look back and think, wow, how did we do any of that? Another quote from Octavia or about Octavia that I found really inspired me about this time. And it is that the lessons in Butler's life and writing help us formulate survival strategies for the inevitable collapse of human civilization. And I mean, doesn't it just feel like that's where we are? Like society's collapsing. I know. And we're laughing, but it's like the laughing crying. Right. <laughs> because it's very it's very sad though, because we know that there are people who have far less than we do. So like the folks who are dying at a disproportionate uh, amount um, and higher in higher frequency from COVID-19 are Chicano, Latino people, African-Americans in places where there are more black folks. So those are folks who don't have a choice but to go and work outside or out of the home. It's it's disheartening because because it has collapsed for people before now. But they're maybe not always people reporting on it. Does that make sense? So when the pandemic first started, the overwhelming work of it all just fell to mothers. We had to become full-time caregivers, teachers, provide emotional support for our kids, become their friends, find ways to connect them with their friends, while also maintaining our own identity, like our own sanity, our own jobs, our own part in the household. And you were the one that gave me the idea to treat this as a historical narrative to document our experiences. Why is speaking up for mothers right now important to you? I feel like... Um... Very often, mothers don't get credit. I know I know I'm not the only person who eats the pancakes or whatever on Mother's Day uh, cleans up, right? <laughs> and then everybody goes back to the way that things are. When I think about my mother, I have more than one mother. my my father remarried. So when I think of my mothers and my grandmothers and the work that they did, um, with less, fewer rights, right? Less sure. access to things, less mobility, less of their own money, and the things that they were still able to accomplish. Um, it makes me feel sad that things have not significantly 
progress? Um, like, what will it be like for your daughters? Right. Will they will this potentially be the same issue? And I feel like in another year or two years, we're going to get the grand male narrative. We need our everyday existence. That's not digital. We need analog. I, uh, you know, we need to send each other cards. We need to save ticket stubs and receipts and other everyday artifacts, or we won't be counted. Our experiences are not going to matter in the grand narrative. They're going to be talking about the presidential debate, or they're going to be talking about, or what all the doctors were doing, which were not really represented in the same way, right? It's going to get, the narrative is not going to include us, and it often does not. So I think it's really important. This is like really essential work that you're doing, and I'm so happy to be a part of it. The idea for this podcast came because I just have so many friends, and we're going through the same thing right now. We're all in the same boat. And there really isn't a set place telling the story of what it's like to be a mother right now. Like most of us are just walking around with our jaw clenched for no other reason than we just have to get through the day. So there's a new study that's about to be published in an academic journal, the journal Gender Work and Organization. And it shows that in heterosexual couples where both the mother and father remained employed during this pandemic and have children under 13, Mothers had reduced their work hours four to five times more than fathers, and this exacerbated the gender gap in work hours by 20 to 50 percent. So mothers have scaled back the hours they spend on work where fathers' work hours remain largely stable. And have you had to give up any of your own work hours or adapt your work schedule? Well, I'm in a unique situation where I'm a contingent employee, right? So I teach as an adjunct in addition to doing all of my like research and Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network stuff. But it's interesting to me because my husband is a public school teacher and he teaches choir. Um, He used to teach jazz, jazz band also, but he has that has dropped away and been assigned to another teacher. But really, I've always worked from home as a parent I've, um, because daycare was unaffordable. I used to work for a school in New York. And for me now, there are things that I just don't do because I just don't have the bandwidth anymore. I go to bed much earlier than I normally would. You know, supposedly I have more time because I'm no longer commuting, but I have more work and more dishes and more laundry and like I'm walking the dog and doing other things that my husband would have done. I mean, it's pretty hairy around here. I don't work full time. So I I mean, I can imagine someone working full time, like needing to punch in a clock instead of, let's say, I need a grade and I can stay up till 2 a.m. or whatever. But there's a lot of things that I have stopped doing because I don't have time. I've just said no because I can't make it work out with a school schedule because I have to be available all the time to be the snack bringer and the tech support, print shop. Yes, I mean, clenched jaw and chronic pain and insomnia and just all kinds of stuff. My, I, I mean, I don't I mean, I don't even know how to express like how I guess the unequal distribution of labor has been compounded. Yes. It's almost because I'm in a very similar situation. I, I work from home. I work part time. My husband's a surgeon, so he has been an essential employee and has to go into work. So nothing has really changed. It's only been exacerbated of how much more. Right. Do. And so it's very we grow. We live in a society of bright siders where, 
you mm. should feel okay because as we've mentioned our children are going to be okay we should be fine we have so much more than others but at the same time I very much believe in giving yourself permission to also just be like this sucks right I know that I have it well I know my kids are fine but I also hate it here I I am with you on that I really it does suck like I I don't know any other way to say it. Um, it's very, it's really disheartening um, and really, really isolating. I find myself doing that doom scrolling. I guess. Not yes. because I really want to read all of the garbage, but just because I want to talk to another adult who's not exhausted. I, I want to have, feel like I have friends. Even if they're pocket we, friends. Exactly. Like my pocket friends, like my pocket friends are the ones that sustain me. I know. I <laughs> um, know. Even more so than like relatives. I actually, I was thinking um, when you said you moved here when you had a newborn. So my uh, niece was born in January and her mom is an engineer. And I don't know what company she works for, but my brother works from nine to five. He's an engineer. But my sister-in-law says that she works all day and takes care of the baby. She works until she goes to sleep. Mm. She works until she goes to sleep. I'm sure you've seen it, too, where people say self-care. And I feel like self-care has become watered down. Like your sister-in-law, she can't take the time to self-care. What is she going to do? Right. right. <laughs> How, where is she going to go? Like, Taking a bath is not... I mean, it can be self-care, I guess. Right. I mean, I, I just bought like another eight or nine um, bath bombs, even <laughs> though my kids more often use them, but I feel better buying them. But I, I realize, though, I come from a very poor background. So for me, self-care is like, oh, paying bills on time, drinking water and taking care of my, you know, washing my, <laughs> washing my face or, you know, it, it could be like regular maintenance things and not putting yourself last. I feel like self-care has become like this toxic positivity yes. as opposed to self-care is supposed to be sustain your life in the way in which you have the right relationship with yourself and with the planet, right? Not your Calgon take me away. I don't know how old you are, but no, remember I the did. Calgon I commercials? Very I very much remember that. Calgon take me away. <laughs> <laughs> And I think the term you just said, toxic po positivity, does not get talked about enough. It just doesn't. I, the day is October 1st. And in the month of September, which is National Suicide Awareness Month, I know of seven people who committed suicide in September. And I would find, and I found this over the years, that so many people, when somebody commits suicide, post to social media, talk to me, turn to me, I'm here, I, I want to talk to you about these things, who have not either seen a therapist or gone through therapy, do not know how to handle the weight of these conversations. Right. And they spin it on bright-siding it, look at it this way, or it's going to get better, and they don't allow people to just feel i think happiness is false <laughs> like it, we have it sometimes but it's this unachievable goal i feel like it shouldn't be the goal i think social media has made more and i oh i know i feel that i i i end up knowing people's business i guess and seeing the way that they portray themselves on social media and it's not the same thing but people have grown up thinking that social media is reality the toxic positivity and that bright siding, like it 
it really is harmful, especially now when you people see other folks taking big vacations and doing different things. It's like, oh, wait, but I have to wear a mask. People don't get it. Just going to say the weird thing about being a mother, particularly, is that people are like, you should be happy that you have your kids. They're so it's so joyful. Oh, enjoy every minute. It's like, no, lots of it is going to not be that fun. People are saying like, oh, I had no idea that, you know, they're saying Black Lives Matter now, but they're like, oh, I had no idea. It's like, no, Black folks and women and people of color, like marginalized folks have been telling you that things were crappy this whole time, but you have to see it. See it to understand it. And you had said something earlier about people have been living in pandemic mentality. Oh, even, or yeah, people who don't have enough people who are on the margins already, Native Americans are also dying at disproportionate rate. And then my boss is Native American. She's Hopi, I believe. She can't even go to the reservation for traditional healing or any, you know, visiting family and things like that because they've had to literally shut down their borders to keep folks from going in. Like they're already on the margins. Um, People have already experienced apocalypse. My point with that is like, it's what I've been hearing Black women say for a long time, which is, we've been telling you this. None of this is new. And I think the stories have been around for so long, and we've known about them for so long and chosen to ignore them for so long. And we are at a point now that we cannot ignore them anymore. I think it's almost like like the tipping point. I do think um, one thing I really appreciate about you is that in my just from outside observation, when something expands your awareness, you let it sink in, even if it's deeply painful. And it is painful to think. It, I think we have now like this survivor's guilt, right? I, I mean, I have it like survivor's guilt, like, wow, what can I do for someone who doesn't have something? What can I? Because it can't just be about me and my family. It's paralyzing. It's so hard to know what you can even do to even start to address all the things that are happening. And there are things that I need to learn and expand my view on. Um, It's really overwhelming. For you being with your kids so much right now, what's one of the hardest things for you to just care about? I am having a very difficult time dealing with bickering and also uh, like my kids are five years apart. So they each essentially got to be only children and they both like the bickering and I mean, most of the time they like each other, but the older one is tired of the little one being his only playmate or not being able to play games as well and all of this. So, you know, I grew up, I have a brother and sister, but I grew up an only child. So I never experienced bickering, but I can tell you that my kids do it right now. And everything you just mentioned, my six-year-old doesn't want to play with a four-year-old they're just differences age-wise and they're sick of each other and then they just yell because that's what you do sometimes and I am like can't you just stop like how do you not know to go to your own room right now right and my kids share a room so So (laughs) the older one will be like get out I don't want you in here it's like no man this is his room too too. oh gosh but yeah I I got to the point where I was like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go outside and get in the car. Do you guys want me to leave? Because I don't think I can take it anymore. I'm going to need to go somewhere. And they're like, no, don't leave. I'm like, but why are you chasing me away? I mean, it's not their fault. They're doing normal kid things, but I just can't. You know, they're they're so, my boundaries have gotten more rigid in a way because I feel like I have less time and less bandwidth for everything. 
Um, it's almost like being touched out when your child is really, really young. Yes. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of touched out. I, yeah. I don't want anybody to, I, I, I just want to be by myself. Keep our eyes on January. That's what I keep telling myself that this is going to end in January. <laughs> I don't I I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do think it's good to have a goal. I do think it's really good. I do think it's good to have like some engagement with the imagination because when your imagination dies, that's that's when the death happens. That's what helps me get through just right now is okay, well what if we did this and what if this happened and let's try for that. This oh. is apocalyptic thinking. It's like, "Oh, if the tornado comes, where will we send the children? Whose house can they knock? I mean, you know, right. I, I think I must be like you too. <laughs> like <laughs> playing all of the scenarios. It's really, it makes me emotional hearing you say that because it's usually people pretending that everything's fine all the time. And you're acknowledging that it's not fine and it might not be, but what if we could imagine something that's other than what we're experiencing? This really just feels so powerful. Oh, my very best friend she and i joke all the time that i drink from the perpetual elixir of hope i am not a bright sider i've said that and i'm not like a very i remember i i stopped seeing a therapist because she had so many like positive pictures in her room but there's this part of me that you you cannot give up hope and even if you don't talk about it and you just have it buried deep down inside that's how we'll get through it i don't i don't know <laughs> i think um, we definitely will get through it but i don't think we're ever going to go back to the way that things were it'll be a, a very long time before we go back to anything remotely like what we knew which maybe it's helpful that we had people like octavia butler and all these dystopian novels and movies help prepare us for what a future society could look like. You do read more of her work because she definitely is this pragmatist who does plant, have these like seeds of hope, even when it seems like all the choices are bad. And I felt like that was just so real. That's yeah. so much more realistic than a lot of the things that I've approached. And you're definitely still in the weeds with a preschooler. I don't envy you. I know it sounds terrible. <laughs> um, it is a lot, but, and thank you for acknowledging it and seeing it. What would the new you say to the old you? I think I think about this all the time. I've only just been able to appreciate what my body has done and who I am now, instead of seeing a deficit in the way that things are. I realized my I, I would just give myself credit for existing and living through some of the traumas and things that I've lived through. And, you know, I would just suggest to my old self that I would that I was going to thrive in some ways. My I'm really, really thriving in terms of keeping the foothold on my mental health because it's, it's been very depressing and very I don't even know. It's just been very overwhelming. But I would just say to myself, like, you will get to a place where you love all of your lumps and rolls and gray hair and aches and pains that those you'll like love waking up alive every morning and you'll be so grateful instead of always thinking like oh i need to lose more weight or oh i need to get you know like the things that i was beating up on myself for without realizing it i probably just give myself a hug i really miss oh. you know hugging the people i love and i realize like i 
I, I've had to pour my anxiety into myself in a healing way instead of, you know, going out to go shopping more, going back to Ross or whatever, right. you know. I think that is great advice for anyone. We as women spend so many, so much time critiquing everything. I mean, I look back at who I was at 18 and 28 and now, and those are all three very different people. <laughs> I wish my 18 year old self had known to go to therapy then. Oh my goodness. Unnecessary trauma in our, my twenties. Oh um, my gosh. I know the toxic relationship. So girl, you are going to be okay. Well, thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me. I have enjoyed listening to you and your stories and your background. Really important for other women to hear and to know that they're not alone right now. We're in it together. And we are. I really appreciate you so much. Thank you. And good luck with the rest of the podcast. Thank you Thank so you. much for having me. Thank you again for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify or Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Before next week's episode, I'd love for us to think about some of the things we discussed today. Like, what is self-care during crisis? Sometimes self-care at times can seem like one more thing to do. And additionally, it adds to the idea that personal problems can, quote, fix themselves by being a little indulgent. But the truth is, they don't go away. The problems are still there. Years ago, for me, shopping was my idea of self-care. And sure, in the moment, I felt better. But then the bill came in. And self-care means different things to different people. A lot of what we see labeled as self-care is not accessible to everyone. And self-care doesn't always have to mean treating yourself. It could mean setting boundaries to contain work or boundaries to contain the news or to contain demand. Self-care can just be establishing limits. What are some boundaries you have established? Maybe think about the difference between self-care and small acts of luxury. Until next week, I see you spinning those plates. I see you doing everything all the time. Until next week.